Okay. <laughs> let's 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 do the civil war. Ah, uh, Desmoines. All right. Uh, we're we're going to try to finish up the civil war today if we can if we can kick it and get it done. We're going through that whirlwind civil war timeline just like we went through the whirlwind revolutionary war. We're not going to do this with every war, but these two, for different reasons, have the, have the most to do with trying to to found how we see our country and then what that does to our our church understanding as a country. Last week we ended up by talking about the Emancipation Proclamation, well, and Japan, the real one this time, instead of the, the John C. Fremont version. So next thing we want to talk about is something called the Battle of Chancellorsville. Fighting Joe Hooker. Remember, we, we finally got a guy who's leading the Army of the Potomac, leading the, the Union forces, who will actually fight, so much so they put it in his name, right? Because McClellan does lots and lots of nothing. So, so you go, fighting Joe Hooker, finally! He, he, he cleans up the army, he trains them well, he's out in the field, he's fine. Oh, the morale is soaring, this is great. It also helps that Grant is doing a great job, he's a good general. He's out in the west, doing a bang-up job, and winning after winning after winning, but his political opponents are still complaining about his drinking even though he wasn't a drinker. Because, remember we talked about that, he didn't, he didn't do much drinking. In fact, he spent most of his time just writing to his wife and, and talking about how much he misses his kids. Hooker was a drinker. This guy was only a drinker. He was a huge partier. In fact, uh, his own staff complained that his headquarters was a combination bar room and brothel. But, but he was doing such a good job of getting the army on track that everybody was like, well, you can't really do anything to Hooker. He's actually working. I mean, who else do we got? McClellan? You can't put him back in charge. So, who do you pick on? You can pick on Grant, because he has no political connections. He's just some guy that's been a failure and everything else. So, if you have the opportunity to shove somebody else down so that you feel taller, you do it, right? It's the easiest way of improving your self-esteem. And he looks like a drinker. Which one? Oh, Grant? Oh, yeah, because everybody's got these really fancy clothes. and everything. Grant was famous for just wearing an old, it's like, enlisted man's uniform and putting some stars on it. It's like, I, I don't really care. I'm not really into formality with this. And a famous story about their complaints. Lincoln said, well, can you tell me where he gets his whiskey? And he's drunk all the time? Yeah. Can you tell me where he gets it? And the, the, the complainer said, oh, no, but why do you want to know? And Lincoln said, because if I could find out, I'll send a barrel of that stuff to every one of my generals. Because he keeps winning! <laughs> you got it from Peoria, obviously. <laughs> There's shortened versions of this, but this is the original version of that story. Which is like, really, find out what Brandy drinks and give it to everybody. Because I don't care if you think he's a lush, he's a lush that wins, all right? As it turns out, he's not even a lush. So Hooker says, I'm going to finish off Lee. This has gone on long enough. We're going to end this. Sends his cavalry around to cut off Lee's supplies. He's going to hit the Army of Northern Virginia at Fredericksburg. We're going to finish this off once and for all. But then three things happen. And anytime I say that, you should go, oh, sigh. Uh, first off, his cavalry didn't end up doing much of anything. They wandered around. They couldn't find stuff. They made all sorts of mistakes. So he thought, oh, the cavalry's cutting off. This is great. He's going to be all alone. No. Which meant that Lee could have Stonewall Jackson. Remember him from last week? Uh, Stonewall Jackson outflank Hooker and drive him back into Chancellorsville, which is where Hooker received a concussion and refused to relinquish command. 
So he was completely irrational and kept making worse and worse decisions, and he wouldn't let anybody else lead. And they kept saying, sir, you're, you're not competent. And he was like, what, are you trying to, you're just a mutiny? Is you trying to, no, no, stockade with you if you do. It's like, this is one of those times where somebody should have said, could we hit him a little harder, just a little harder, put him out? That, no. So he's sitting there on the porch with a concussion, making really bad decision after really bad decision. Lincoln got a fighter in Hooker, even in his name. What he needed was somebody who could fight intelligently. Not just an intelligent guy who trains troops and does nothing with them. And not just a fighter who goes out there, not a filing cabinet, not a gorilla. He needed, he needed a soldier, right? If only there were a soldier floating around that he could make use of. Maybe out, out west, you know, I don't know. So basically, Lee did everything right on the same day that Hooker did everything wrong. So Hooker resigns and re replaced by a guy named George Mee, quiet and intelligent former engineer. Yay! Right, civil engineers. Yeah, actually, Mead's not bad. Mead's not bad at all. He's not spectacular, but at least he's not spectacularly bad. So, yay! Mead's finally a decent fellow. Now, in response to Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, the Confederates decided to do their own political decision-making here and, and their own uh, changing the tenor of the war, and they declared it a capital offense for any black man to serve in the United States Army, which means if we find any black man in uniform or carrying a gun, he's we immediately kill him. There's no quarter for that. So, like, in the, in the north. In the north. Like, so even if the north comes down and... Mm -hmm. So if there's a black unit in the south, they're all going to die. You understand the what they're trying to do here in terms of morale? It's like because if you guys and a bunch of white people go down and you're fighting and you get overrun and you go, we surrender, we'll send you to a prisoner of war camp, right? <laughs> and those are great. Those are great. Yeah, yeah, but you don't necessarily know that yet. You haven't seen the newsreels. Um, not a fun place, but at least you're not dead. And depending on the situation, there's sometimes where they just took all your weapons and said, leave. You know, but you're, you're not, you may not go home happy, but you're, you're not going to, if you're a black unit, you're going to die. They're going to shoot you as if you were spies. The automatic thing, automatic thing. Because they're seen as, the black units were seen as kind of a, a joke, unfortunately, from both sides. There are a lot of people in the Union that saw the black units as kind of a political joke. It's just a way to say, look, it's all about ending slavery. I mean, we wouldn't actually put them into a legitimate fighting situation. That's just ridiculous. Ever, anybody ever seen the movie Glory? Okay, there's, there's two very different views of black units in that movie. Um, one where most people are like, yeah, it's, it's kind of quaint, it's kind of cute, whatever. Here's a black unit, we just basically use them to to ravage different towns down south because, I mean, they're like children. You can't expect them to do anything. And then there's the main people in the story that are saying, no, these are human beings, these are men, and we want to let them be men. Let them serve their country just like anybody. And, and two very, very different ways of viewing that. That's even within the north. Down south, they see this as a northern black units as an offense. They're like, no, no, no. It's designed to make our own blacks uh, rise up and, and, and throw off the shackles of their slavery. No, so if we see a black man in uniform, we'll, we'll, we will kill him. 
he will not end, end that battle alive. Yeah. My teacher in high school wrote a book about a um, northern um, black army soldier who uh, was a flag bearer, and uh, he carried it for like so many battles. Um, but throughout the, you know, now the family of that person, um, he helped them get the Medal of Honor issues. Oh, neat. Neat. All right. We're talking enough about this kind of stuff. The autobiography of abolitionist preacher John Wesley Redfield is published around this time, right before he dies. So, uh, kind of important. It's called Live While You Preach. You gotta you, you preach while you live, live while you preach. You gotta be living this out constantly. Redfield, a guy named B.T. Roberts, had broken away from the Methodist Episcopal Church in 1860 to found their own denomination called the Free Methodists. Anybody ever heard the term? Anybody ever heard the term Free Methodists? Right. The name is chosen to represent their opposition to. Well, Free Methodists. To slavery. To the Pew system. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. It has nothing to do with slavery or anything like that. It has to do with the Pew tax. Families are going to rent or buy pews, right, in the sanctuary so they'd have a place to sit together every week. <laughs> the way God intended. <laughs> oh, yeah, y'all laugh. When was the last time you picked a different pew? Yeah. yeah. We can bring this up at the elders. That'd be a great way of making money. <laughs> yeah. Dave Bazinski still wants me to, you know, say, and this mass is brought to you by Sarah, who gave me 20 bucks to say that. So. <laughs> um, Pew system's been around for centuries. In fact, I think I talked about this back in the Middle Ages, that uh, uh, there's a famous book called The History of Middle, uh, of an English parish, where they used the local church pews as the structural outline for what was going on in the middle over the last couple of centuries. You know, this family has had this pew for 300 years, that sort of thing. I have this on my shelves at home just because it's such a bizarre read to use the pews as the outline. Anyway. So, Robertson Redfield, um, they said that it, it commercialized the church service, because now people are buying the opportunity to go to church, and that's not the way it should be. It divides the rich from the poor, because the poor can't afford the good seats, right? In fact, Redfield even cites James 2, which hopefully jumped to your mind, especially since we just read it last week. So, where Redfield says, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes to your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and you say, hey, sit in the nice seats, aren't you? Aren't you discriminating? Isn't that a bad thing? It's like, isn't that what we're doing? You can afford the good pews, and so we put the good pews up front, and if you're rich enough, you can do this. They also said it desegregated the service. Men and women are sitting together as families. That's not what God intended, right? Oh, I mean, Calvin and Wesley and Luther, they were all extremely clear. Women should not sit with men. That is inappropriate. You got your own seats. Yeah. Well, even in like the apostolic church, um, the men, the single men sit together, and the mm -hmm. single women sit together, but families sit together because they're married. Those apostolic liberals, <laughs> they need to take their faith just a little more seriously in that church. No, sir, but this is the way people. For anybody listening, I'm totally kidding. Anyway, but no, that's. But that's the thing is, their their view were was that that families should not be sitting together, men and women shouldn't be sitting together, women should be sitting quietly by themselves, and men should be involved by themselves. Does this go back to like the two different um, sections in the temple? Well, you chase it back far enough, or, or the most direct one that they point back to is where Paul is saying, you know, hey, stay silent, talk to your husband about it later, which was a more 
situational kind of thing than this. So, anyway, um, Pastor Kevin Snow, gotta say this. Never even mentioned what I see as the biggest problem. What would you see as the biggest problem with the Pew system? Maybe you say, no, it's because it divides the rich from the poor. Maybe you say it's because it puts families together. I don't know. What? Did you have to pay money to go to church? Yeah, it's not a good because otherwise you got to stand in the back. Well, in empty pews, I, I think families are like, hey, well, we bought our pew, but we don't really have to come. I mean, I, that's I, true. I, Nobody else can sit there because it's my pew. That actually starts pointing to what I think is the problem. I mean, I don't, it doesn't mean that your whatever you think is the problem isn't necessarily the problem too. Anything else that you see? Yeah. <laughs> it looks like they're trying to buy their way into heaven. Oh yeah, that's another one where it's. it's a, I'll expand that commercialization of the, of the of the church service. It's like, if I just spend money this way, the church goes on, and I get to I get to go to heaven because I. Personally, this may not be a big thing to you, but to me it is. The church service is all about circumscribing. This is mine. That's yours. This is mine. This is my territory. That's your territory. This ministry is mine. That's your. I think that's horrendous. That's one of the biggest killers of a church, and people don't seem to notice that still anymore. But this how. I was so proud, and I am so proud of your elders and deacons, because very, very soon uh, after we got here, we, we heard people using less and less of the me, my ministry, my this, my, and more of the our ministry. This is our thing. This is how it interrelates with other parts of the church. And yeah, it, it, it's, it's so important to see us as one family, one community, instead of my things, my ministry. How come I don't get this? I want that. My ministry needs first... The, uh, the the very first budget meeting I, I went to only a couple months after I was here. Um, one of the things I mean, it was, a, it was kind of an intense meeting. It went on for like three hours. And it was harsh. Um, but one of the things that bothered me the most was how many of us were using first person personal pronoun. My ministry needs this. I need this, and he is taking my money for his ministry. And it's like this stops now. This is not the way to look at this. And I think this is the same sort of thing. You're circumscribing. You're saying, this is my pew. This is, Sarah, you're not welcome in this pew because this is my pew for my family. Go find your own pew. Is that the kind of church Christ ever intended us to have? Now, again, pretty much everybody sits in pretty much the same section of the church building that they always sit in. Go crazy, to, go crazy today, if you would, and flip sides. Go sit in some place completely different. And sometimes you do. Sometimes you do. But it's hard, and you find yourself like you struggle to worship quite the same way. Why? Because this is my pew. I don't know if I can look at it from another angle. Trying to my point. Anyway, so by the time they actually incorporated and became their own thing, his abolitionist leanings kind of spun into a different direction. They started saying, "We're free Methodists because we are against slavery." It's not what the term actually meant. It's not where it started. But it quickly became what it retroactively meant. We always meant this. We didn't. Sure, sort of. Why not? Anyway, Battle of Gettysburg. How many people have heard of the Battle of Gettysburg? Thank you for playing. Anyway, after Chancellorsville, the South is doing great. Morale is soaring. And they decide this is the time to push north again. Remember what was Lee's point? How did all the fighting happen in the north so they were getting yeah, he's like, if I can keep the fighting in your part of the country, you'll stop wanting to fight, right? I don't have to beat you. I just have to keep you fighting in your part of the country. And then you will not want to do this anymore. 
So he says, I'm going to invade Pennsylvania. If I could make it to Philadelphia, just how about a, it's like Pearl Harbor. I mean, how about a, a morale killer would that be? If I can break the spirits of, of, of the Northerners, nobody wants to fight in their backyard, this is good. But the forward guard of the Army of Northern Virginia got stopped at Gettysburg because there happened to be a cavalry general there named Buford who held them there long enough for everybody else to get there. They're like, oh, we're going to get the high ground. He's like, I actually got here first. I got a relatively small cavalry unit, but if I can keep you off the high ground, we can hold this. Of course, that also gave Lee time to bring in his whole army, including his tactician, James Longstreet, who we talked about last time. This is the brightest people in the entire war. Second day of the battle, Union held the high ground on the hill outside of town. Thank you, Buford. Longstreet orders this huge attack on the left flank, defended only by the 20th Maine. Uh, this, this Maine regiment down here in Pennsylvania, off on the side of the, of, of Longstreet's like, if we can just get around them, if we can outflank them and get on the other side, we can take the high ground. It's commanded by a guy named Colonel Joshua Chamberlain, who is the coolest guy in the entire Civil War. If you learn nothing else today, Colonel Joshua Chamberlain is the coolest guy in the whole Civil War. College professor who taught rhetoric. <laughs> Went to seminary to learn to be a pastor. Loved languages and classical military history. Huge abolitionist. He's me with hair. An awesome mustache. And an awesome mustache. This guy's, got, this guy's rocking the Wilford Brimley. So I love this guy. And again, remember we talked about as you're coming off of this, whether you want to call it the, the layman's revival or the second great awakening, this huge move of Christ and, and the Holy Spirit in the, in the United States in the mid-19th century, a ton of soldiers are involved in the war because of their Christian faith. We talked about this at length last time. My, my uncle, being a Civil War historian, says you just every letter you read, they're talking about how much they love the Bible study that they've got in camp. They're quoting Bible verses. They may, they may only be relatively literate. They're saying, I'm having my buddy write this for me. But just like it says back in Jeremiah, it's like, these guys love the Lord. En masse, an amazing number of soldiers spend an awful lot of their time talking about how much they love the Lord, how much they love Scripture, how much they, they love their chaplain and the Bible service, the, 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 the Christian services they have on Sunday. It's a huge thing. Anyway, um, so... Second day of the attack, 20th Maine repels wave after wave after wave of these Confederates, so much so they run out of ammunition. They have no bullets anymore, and they absolutely have to hold them. Because Longstreet's right, if he could just get around, he could take the high ground, now he's going to win. So, Chamberlain executes a maneuver he'd only read about in military history. He's like, oh, wait a minute. What if we charge them? They keep charging our position. We don't charge them down the hill just kind of as a big clump because then they could get around us. What we do is we do this as a big pivot. We, we've got this elbow that's still attached to the, the larger force, and we just stick bayonets in the, in the front of our guns and do this wave, and we push them back down the hill. As they're shooting bullets at us, we point pointy things at them. Capturing 101 enemy soldiers and destroying Longstreet's plan and keeping the Union Army from being outflanked. This one guy with his main regiment and his plan that he read about one time won that battle. Changed the momentum of the day, changed the momentum of the war because of this guy. 
coolest guy in the whole Civil War, Joshua Chamberlain. Third day of the battle. 20th Maine is exhausted after this day. And so they get rewarded. They're like, all right, we're going to send you to where the fighting is the lightest. Because you guys worked so hard yesterday. Just go smack down in the center of the, the Union lines. They keep fighting us on the sides. Just go in the center. You're surrounded by other people. You, you have a light day. Dead center of the Union lines, which just happened to be where George Pickett decides to throw what became famous as Pickett's Charge. Threw 12,500 Confederates at the dead center of the Union lines. Because they knew that that's where they'd be weakest, because they're defending the sides. Two days not to be from Maine is basically what we're talking about. Came very close to breaking through. It was come down to hand-to-hand, -hand, close quarter, hit you with the with the stock of my of, of my rifle kind of combat. Almost broke through. The Union lost 1,500 men. But the Confederate casualty was actually a little over 50%. They lost more guys than, than survived this. It, it, was, it was absolutely brutal. Pickett's Charge became famous for being a... That was unfortunate. He didn't quite break through. In less than an hour after Pickett's Charge, the fighting is over, and Lee's invasion of Pennsylvania is over. Why? Because Joshua Chamberlain is like the coolest guy in the Civil War. Three intense days of fighting. Lee goes back to Virginia. 52,000 soldiers become casualties of war. Some of the most famous photographs from the Civil War are the Gettysburg battlefield, filled with corpses. Filled with corpses of soldiers, filled with corpses of horses. It was a horror. Isn't it still the bloodiest part of the battle that most American soldiers have lost their lives in the Battle of Gettysburg. Yes, I think so. Antietam was the most, was the bloodiest single day of fighting. Right. So. But I mean, like, still today, this is. Right. In terms of battles, I yeah, think so. This is still. Months later, the Union commemorates the battle with one huge funeral for the fallen soldiers. And they invite the greatest order of the nation to speak, giving a Gettysburg address. Who is this? Oh. Edward Everett. Right? Best order in the nation. Former representative, former senator, former senator, presidential candidate, former secretary of state, ordained minister, president of Harvard University. If anybody, yeah, if anybody has ever had a resume to give an amazing speech, it was him. And he gave an amazing speech. Lasts for two hours. Could have heard a pin drop for two hours. Everybody said, this is quite possibly the best speech I've ever heard. And then he turned it over to Lincoln, who spoke for two minutes. Grand total of ten sentences. You can quote Everett's speech, can't you? Can you quote a word of Everett's speech? Yet I can quote the whole Gettysburg Address. Lincoln, Everett wrote to Lincoln and said, I should be glad if I could flatter myself that I came as near to the central idea of the occasion in two hours as you did in two minutes. Because that was powerful. Now, something else though about Gettysburg and Lincoln. Over the years, people have debated exactly what Lincoln's faith was was. Is he a theist? He's just somebody who thinks there's a God. Is he a deist? I think there's a God, but I don't think he's very involved. Is he a Christian? I have a relationship with Christ. Which is he? Because, you know, throughout his, his campaign for, for presidency, throughout his life, he's forever like, quoting scripture or talking about God. But what kind of actual faith did he have? He never went to church with any kind of regularity. So, what kind of guy was he? Um... He never wrote about his relationship with Christ in any of his journals or any of his letters. 1864, an Illinois visited him in the White House. 
and asked him point blank if he loved Jesus. Because, remember, mid-19th century, huge move of God going on. He's just like, I want to know, not just do you know the Lord, not just do you believe there's a God, do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? you got to be kind of gutsy to walk up to the President of the United States and say, do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? I'm like, congratulations, Mr. Illinois. In response, Lincoln buried his face in his handkerchief and cried. And he answered, when I left home to take this chair of state, I requested my countrymen to pray for me. I was not then a Christian. When my son died, the severest trial of my life, I was not a Christian. But when I went to Gettysburg, and I looked upon the graves of our dead heroes who had fallen in defense of their country, I then and there consecrated myself to Christ. Yes, I love Jesus. He's like, when I saw people willing to give their lives to save others, it finally sunk in what Jesus did. Yes, I became a Christian after Gettysburg. Important stuff. Important stuff. So who was the Illinois? I don't know. All we did, uh, we've heard, and this is from various sources. We've heard various versions of this. Um, independent sources. So it's, it's, it's pretty clear this is what actually happened. But the most complete part of this was from a, a sermon that a pastor in Illinois gave where he specifically said a friend of mine went to visit Lincoln. So I don't know his name. Nope. But whoever that guy is, I like him. <laughs> Battle of Vicksburg. Again, some of these should be familiar terms to you, even if you don't know the battles real well. Grant has been doing an awesome job out west. And he's trying to do, remember old Winfield Scott plan of the Anaconda plan? Let's wrap it around. And, and, and if we can just separate the south from any kind of support, if we can just keep them boxed in, they'll eventually fizzle. And he focused on Mississippi. General uh, John Pemberton, Confederate uh, Army of Mississippi is caught between Grant's forces and Sherman's forces and retreats into the city of Pittsburgh and lost 33,000 troops. The loss of Mississippi, Confederate states are cut in half. How important is that? The Union now controls the Mississippi River and the mouth of it all the way down here. These states are off doing their own thing and there's very little fighting going on there anyway. And they're, kind of, they're stuck there and cut off. For all intents and purposes, this is all that's left of the Confederacy. It's not just cut in half, but it's reduced by half. They didn't need Texas anyway. <laughs> We're going to talk about Aquaman later. All right, and its armies are not, armies are not only diminished, but they're also penned in. They can't really go anywhere. Now, he surrendered the same day that Lee retreated from Gettysburg, July 4th, 1863. So you can imagine what the papers are saying on July 5th, right? Between losing 33,000 troops at Vicksburg and the end of fighting in Gettysburg where Lee was turned back, places like the Philadelphia Inquirer are like, Waterloo eclipsed! This is the greatest thing ever! We're winning! It'll be over soon! Because yeah, it totally was, right? Yeah. Battle of Chickamauga. William Rosecrans had been following Grant's lead. He's been pushing Braxton Bragg's Confederate troops out of the last bits of Tennessee. It's like, yeah, we'll just, if we can just keep pushing them out little by little, that's good. And then he just stopped. He did a great job. He, he was pushing back the brag out and then nestled in. South, uh, the southern falls rolling in. He's like, he wrote, we think it's probably going to be muddy. It's going to be hard to move our equipment and things. You know, it would be good if we had time to just kind of dig in. We've got defenses to build. I don't I mean, we've we worked really hard to win what we've got already. I'm a little afraid to keep pushing on. We'll just 
kind of kind of dig in. Lincoln, multiple people requested time and again. Could you, could you please keep marching to Chattanooga? I mean, could you, could you please? Mm, no. Really, really, you've got him on the run. Bragg is is struggling, and he's he's, he's starting to entrench himself in Chattanooga. Would you move your army? Where you pick on him too much, you ever, you ever do that in your life? Where you know you're supposed to do something, you kind of drag your heels for whatever reason, start coming up with a thousand different reasons why maybe this isn't a good time to do what God or your spouse or whomever was telling you. Yeah, maybe not right now. In fact, he was finally given a direct order to engage the enemy, or else they would break up his army and send them different places where people were actually fighting. Like you're you're wanting to just keep your your army together, right? Okay, we will break it up if you don't engage. Now, in fact, Rosecrans, Rosecrans still dragged his heels. There's only a staff general named James A. Garfield that pushed them forward. Anybody know the name of James Garfield? Huh. Yeah, later became president. There's only, you know, his entire staff said, you know, you're probably right. Maybe we should just stay here. Garfield's like, we really should fight the war. There's a whole war going on. Can we please go do this? After all that time, that gave Lee time to send Longstreet to support Bragg. So that by the time that Rosecrans finally crossed the Chickamauga River, and remember, the South tends to name battles after South tends to name battles after cities. cities. The North tends to name battles after rivers and creeks. Right. So after Rosecrans finally crossed the Chickamauga Creek, he meets a much larger, much fresher force and Longstreet, none of which he was anticipating. If he had just done what he was supposed to do, so Rosecrans totally underestimates the Confederates. He keeps. He keeps even writing little cables going, no, nope, we got him on the run, no, nope, we're going to win, no, nope, we're winning. Like, no, you're, you're really not. Yeah, they're going to break and run. No, no, they're really not. This is Longstreet. Longstreet doesn't break and run. At critical point in the battle, he closed ranks because he's like, oh, I think I know where Longstreet's going. I think we've got a gap in the line. Let's close ranks to hold on to that gap. You go, yep. That opens up the gap. He actually pulled people to a non-existent gap, creating a gap, and Longstreet, being Longstreet, says, well, there's a gap, and runs right through it. And totally cranks up. End of the second day of fighting, both sides are exhausted. Both sides lost roughly 17,000 men. And due to Bragg's screw-ups, Rosecrans was able to withdraw to Chattanooga. He wasn't destroyed, but now he's penned in in Chattanooga. It's like, I, I can't do anything. At least I didn't lose my army because Longstreet had to leave. And, and then Bragg says, well, I'm an idiot. And so Rosecrans slips out, but he slips out to a hole. It's like, I can't get out of my hole. So the Southerners are again soaring. They're like, oh, after, after that really bad July 4th, at least this army didn't do anything, and now they're stuck in Chattanooga, which leads to the Chattanooga campaign. Grant is given command over the whole Army of the West. Lincoln says, okay, do something out there, because things are starting to fall apart. Immediately brings Sherman to attack Confederate positions outside of Chattanooga, and also Burnside, remember? Side burns Burnside? to attack eastern Tennessee from Ohio. So what does that do? We got one chunk of really aggressive guys attacking Chattanooga and another chunk starting to attack the, the rest of Tennessee that you'd like to keep. If you're the Confederates, what do you have to do? You have to split. Otherwise, you just give Burnside eastern Tennessee. Can't do that. So Longstreet withdraws completely in order to engage Burnside. He's like, I got no choice. I got to fight Burnside. Hooker who is an idiot, but a fighter, and now under the direction of Grant, 
Hooker is sent to attack the relatively light Confederate position on a place called Lookout Mountain. So if you've ever heard of the Battle of Lookout Mountain. Grant and Sherman focused on taking Bragg and his main force at Missionary Ridge, if you've ever heard of the, the Battle of Missionary Ridge. Union troops under command of guys like George Wagner succeeded in the kind of frontal assault that didn't work for Pickett at Gettysburg. And so now they can actually kick it and they move in and they take the area. Bragg's men break and run and run right into Hooker's troops who are coming back from their battle at Lookout Mountain. Everybody's stuck in between Grant and Sherman and Hooker's forces and it's a big win for the Union. Rosecrans and his army are saved. The Confederate armies of Tennessee are completely broken. The Union ends 1863 on a high note. They've regained the momentum. Yay. More crucially, Lincoln's like, hey, Grant's actually pretty good. You ever notice every time we put him in charge, we win? Here's a thought. So he puts Grant in charge of all the Union armies, saying, Meade is going to be in charge of a lot of different things, but you're in charge of the actual battlefield stuff of the Union army at the beginning of 1864. And the taking of Chattanooga also opens the door for Grant to send Sherman, who's now the guy in charge of the Army of the West, into Georgia. And he concentrates on attacking Atlanta. Q gone with the wind. All right, end of 1863. North is feeling better. South is beginning to lose some hope. In that fall, Lincoln proclaimed that the first uh, federally mandated Thanksgiving Day should be kept on the last Thursday of November. And he says... No human counsel hath divided, nor hath any mortal hand worked out these great things. They are the gracious gifts of the Most High God, who, while dealing with us in anger for our sins, hath nevertheless remembered mercy. It has seemed to me fit and proper that they should be solemnly, reverently, and gratefully acknowledged as with one heart and one voice by the whole American people. I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States, and also those who are at sea and those who are sojourning in foreign lands, to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November next, as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens. So Thanksgiving begins in the Civil War, because Lincoln's like, you know what? we got to remind ourselves, we're winning because God is here, and God is acting. That's what we need to honor. That's what we need to remind ourselves. That December, Lincoln and the Treasury Secretary requested that the words, In God We Trust, which had been a rallying cry at Antietam, be added to all American currency. So if you ever wonder, why, when did we actually do In God We Trust? It's after Gettysburg. At the end of 1863, after Lincoln said, let's have a Thanksgiving Day to God, he's like, let's remind ourselves that it's in God we place our trust. That's what we need to do. So you understand what I'm saying? The Civil War is kind of one of these key moments of understanding how we as a culture view our relationship with God. 1956, it's officially adopted as our nation's motto, taking the place of the unofficial e pluribus unum. That was never actually the official model, but we used it a lot. Now it's officially, in God we trust, and there have been multiple lawsuits ever since, right? Because it's offensive for some people. Because this is, again, kind of the, the, the culmination of us seeing ourselves as a Christian nation. And everything after this starts more and more saying, let's get past the whole God thing. Anyway, even up north, the cost of war is really weighing on people. In fact, this guy named Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, who lost his first wife in childbirth and his second wife in a horrible accident where a dress caught fire. And he tried desperately to save her. He got burned so badly trying to save her, they had to grow a beard to cover up his facial scars. He couldn't even go to the funeral because he was injured so badly. When he heard in November that his eldest son had been seriously wounded, 
and thought to be dead, he lost all hope. By the time Christmas rolled around, he began to feel he had no faith left, just nothing good. So he wrote a poem. Anybody know what poem he wrote? I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play of wild and sweet, the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. He goes through and says, you know what? In despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then peeled the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. But that is in this context of the Civil War. In fact, a couple years later, it was put to music by a British guy, an organist. And that's the one that you sing. 1864, Battle of Fort Pillow. Nathan, oh, get over yourself. Nathan Bedford Forrest, a famous cavalry uh, commander in the, in the Confederates, led a series of cavalry raids in the West, hoping to break a hole. He laid waste to Paducah, Kentucky, and his roughly 2,000 troops moved into attack Fort Pillow in western Tennessee, manned by only 600 guys, because it's an out-of-the-way place. They weren't expecting it to get much, much business. In fact, most of the people there were either raw recruits, young guys, or black troops that people didn't want to go into fighting in the first place. A sniper took out the, the commander of the fort, and so uh, a young cavalry officer named Bradford took charge. But the fort was poorly designed, and forest guys overwhelmed them with sheer numbers. Forrest demanded that they surrender, but Bradford refused. There was a Union gunboat in the river, and he's like, oh, surely they'll help us. But they couldn't without, like, blowing holes in the fort. It was really no help at all. So the gunboat actually closed all their gun ports and went hit under decks and didn't do anything. Fort was overrun, and at that point, the surviving Union soldiers threw down their arms and surrendered. Remember anything from earlier today? Yeah. Confederates, citing their capital defense law, slaughtered everybody. Killed everybody. Slaughtered every one of the unarmed troops. In fact, they also killed all the unarmed black civilians in the fort. Forrest's own accounts explain his actions. He said, it's hoped that these facts will demonstrate to the northern people that Negroes, soldiers cannot cope with southerners. You need to make this really, really clear. After this, uh, Grant officially demanded that black soldiers and white soldiers be treated the same on the battlefield and treated the same in POW camps. He's like, this is against every rule of warfare. This is horrific. But the South refused, and then they said, you know what, we're going to make it a capital crime to command black soldiers. If you are a white officer commanding black soldiers, we'll kill you. Tellingly, Forrest went on to, to become the first Grand Wizard of the KKK. Whatever it started out as, by the time you get to the end of the Civil War, it's primarily about slavery. It has become about that. Battle of the Wilderness. Grand understood, like we said, if I can if I can do what Lee's trying to do, if I can keep the fighting down south, keep them fighting down there, that's how I'm going to win. So he took his army down to Virginia. He's like, I'm, I'm going to march on Richmond. In the grand scheme of things, I don't even care if I ever take Richmond. I mean, yeah, I want to. But if all I ever do is keep Lee fighting in Virginia, I still win, don't I? Same thing. And they're so evenly matched, it keeps, they keep fighting, fighting, keeps being inconclusive, inconclusive. Though with Longstreet and Lee being good generals, they, they actually fared a little bit better than the North. But again, Grant's like, I don't have to beat him. I just have to keep him in the field. 
I just have to keep him fighting. Especially since Sherman is now coming in. We've opened up this area here. We've opened up Chattanooga. Sherman can pour all of his guys into Georgia. So I'm going to have Sherman go pinch them from Georgia. If I have Sherman crunching everything down south and I'm keeping Lee in the field up north, how long is he going to want to do that? Every day Lee is stuck on the battlefield, the south, the south loses more. They lose more ground. They lose more people. So Lee says, that's it. I can keep him from taking Richmond. I'm going to take Washington, D.C. Well, Grant's trying to out-Lee Lee. Lee's going to out-Grant Grant. I'm going to go I'm going to go do that. That's what I'm going to do. But Jubal Early comes to attack, and he's actually slowed down by a holding action by a guy named General Lou Wallace. That name sound familiar? After the war, he writes a book called Ben-Hur, Tale of the Christ. Because he has this conversation with an atheist where he says, you know, I realize I don't think I have good answers for you. So I think I need to write a book about this. I think I need to study some more about Christ. All that gave Grant the time to successfully divert troops from his assault on Richmond and defend Washington. So thank you, Lou Wallace. By the way, the fighting was so close, Lincoln actually had to duck. Lincoln actually had to take... Uh, he came under fire and actually had to take cover while he was observing the battle. So, don't normally think about that. You go, yeah, Confederates attacked Washington, D.C. Okay. After Lee retreats back into Virginia, he gets fully supplied. Everybody's like, yeah, we didn't take Washington, but we scared. We shot at Lincoln. Um, North is really struggling. Lee get, er, Lincoln gets reelected, but only receives 55% of the popular vote and only 48% of the electoral vote. It was split between other people like George B. McClellan. Somehow got a lot of votes. As did John C. Fremont. You know these names of people you'd so want to be president, right? Hard to believe that there might be presidential candidates you might not be interested in voting for, but that's the way it was back in the 1800s. Lincoln realized, he's like, we got to do something. Something's got to break. Every year, i got to keep coming up with emancipation proclamations or something. I, I'm in the unenviable position of having to want to keep the war going. So how do I keep the war going? I need some sort of decisive something that turns the tide of the war. Grant pulls out, puts out this full court press. He's like, I'm going to fight and fight and fight. I'm going to win victory after victory after victory. But Lee kept dodging him. He's like, we need something big. So what do you do? You need something big to, to, to give the North a moral victory, but also to keep to end the war down south once and for all. What do you do? There you go. Grant authorizes something from Sherman. Sherman's order to begin what became known as Sherman's March to the Sea. Burns Atlanta and then marches 300 miles to the sea, right? To coastal Savannah. We're going to destroy all the military forces, all the military objectives, all the textiles, everything we could possibly do. We're going to forage off the land in a month-long march. They took whatever provisions they needed from the land, crops, livestock, anything that they wanted, burned every field, tore down every cotton mill, mangled every railway, they start calling it Sherman's neckties because they would heat up the, the, the rails and then twist them so that you couldn't use them. Burn it, burn it, burn it, burn it, burn it. They did what they what became known as total war. This idea of saying we're going to destroy the infrastructure and make the enemy not want to fight anymore. When people complained that Sherman was creating hellish conditions, he said war is hell. We're just doing it effectively. We're just doing it a lot. But this is what war is all about. Now, I need to clarify something. Though. Yeah? That's exactly what it is. How so? I was going to make that an illusion myself. Well, I mean, it's... 
World War II was just going on and on in theater as well, mm -hmm. and there, there wasn't like a big thing put an end to it, and um, this was a total destruction kind of thing, and that wasn't just affecting the soldiers. Right. You burn their crops and tie up their railways and everything else, and it's, it affects everybody. And that's the same thing that Truman had to face in World War II. He's like, the Japanese said, we will fight to the last man, like Churchill said about England. We will always keep fighting forever and ever and ever. And he's like, I won't just kill a lot of people. I'll destroy. Turn Japan into a sea of glass. Please. Surrender. You know, and, and Truman said it was the most horrendous decision he ever made. It was horrible. But his idea is, if I kill thousands of people in a horrible way, do I save millions of lives? kind of what he's doing here. But I need to clarify something. Because when we think about this, a lot of times we think, oh, oh he's, he's burning farms and killing people and hurting civilians. No, 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 no. He gave strict instructions to his troops not to burn or even to enter civilian homes. You do not molest civilians. You do not ever harm any civilians. You don't even speak aggressively towards civilians. In no way, shape, or form. If there is anybody that just stays in their home, you salute them and you walk on past. You burn their crops. You take it. You take their livestock, but you do not hurt a civilian. If they attack you, you can respond, but that's it. This is a campaign against the infrastructure, not the people. Because if you start attacking the people, you start burning towns, then you're going to be seen as marauders. This isn't marauding. This is destroying the infrastructure. So you've got to be the most well-mannered marauders of all time. We don't normally think about this, because everybody always says, Sherman's March to the Sea, that malicious, oh, everybody. There were strict rules about how they're supposed to behave as they're doing this. Did they obey them fairly well? Yeah. Yeah, you, don't, you, don't, you don't say, Sherman. No. There, the, the couple of times where people did, <laughs> yeah. the couple of times where people did, like, uh -huh. like mess up civilians or enter farmhouses and mess with women and stuff, uh -huh. massive civilians. Fear immediate penalty. Okay. Yeah. This, this is, if you destroy the infrastructure too, but leave the people um, without supplies and food and everything, then public opinion starts to turn as well. Because if you maraud, public opinion says, under no circumstances will we ever surrender to the Union. But if you say, we won't hurt you, but we will destroy everything you're fighting for, everything you're fighting for, then public opinion is, Let's stop this. It's not worth it. And some didn't have the wealth enough to continue the war. Not like that. Not that kind of wealth. Exactly. During this time, a pastor actually talked to Lincoln. He said, it's all right. Everything we do is morally sound because God's on our side. Right? You can be certain that God's on our side. Lincoln's response became famous. Anybody remember what he said? I'm not at all concerned about that, for I know that the Lord is always on the side of right. But it is my constant anxiety and prayer that I and this nation should be on the Lord's side. God's on our side. No, he isn't. You don't pray at a football game, dear God, help us win and beat them because God's on my side because I'm from Morton. <laughs> like, no, I don't care if God's on our side. I want to make sure I'm on God's side. That's how we win, by being on God's side. Lee's like, oh, man, nuts. They actually found somebody who knows how to do this. I, I'm really good. Longstreet's really good. But we've never had the resources that the North has had other than good military commanders. What if the North actually has good military commanders? We're toast. Nerds. 
He's like, I've never been beaten, but Grant keeps pushing into the south, and as long as Grant keeps me fighting, Sherman's burning everything we're fighting for. Nerds, 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 nerds. At the end of December, Sherman sent Lincoln a telegram saying, I beg to present to you a Christmas gift of the city of Savannah. Christmas Day, knock yourself out. 1865, the 13th Amendment. By the beginning of 1865, the situation in the South is looking bleak. They've now been chopped up pretty nastily. They're all isolated from one another. And seeing how well Sherman's march worked, issue said, I'm going to, Lincoln said, I'm going to do a one-two punch. 13th Amendment of the Constitution. What does the 13th Amendment say? Slavery. Thank you. Yes. Oh, this is a good one to know. Outlaws slavery. Because remember, Lincoln couldn't do that with the Emancipation Proclamation, right? He's like, I'm only executive. I can't make law. What I can do is talk about what happens in the theater of the war. But I can't change the law. But if I can get Congress to pass, to pass a law. So, 1865, 13th Amendment. Immediately up north, thousands of former slaves that are now freed. Thousands of northerners join the, the northern army saying, now we have something to fight for. Because once the war is over, the Emancipation Proclamation doesn't mean anything, does it? Because it's all about areas that we're fighting, not areas of the United States. But now it's if we win, there is no more slavery in this country or in any of its territories or in any, any of its colonies. Yeah, people are signing up in droves. And so poor Lee's going, nuts, nuts, their army is growing. My army is shrinking at the same time that their army is growing. Nerds, and now they're putting competent offers in charts. Nerds, nerds. January, combination of the Army, Navy, and Marines took out Fort Fisher, called the Gibraltar of the South, the last major fortified position of the Confederate military. Lee is now officially running. He's like, I have no forts. I have no place as a redoubt. A month later, the Port of Wilmington, the last Confederate port, which Fort Fisher, Fisher had defended, fell to the Union Army and Navy. The South officially is hemmed in. The Anaconda plan is in place. There's no place to go. They're receiving no aid from anybody. There's no redoubt to go to. Even after the war, the effect of under slavery was less profound, though, than you would think. We, we sit there and go, oh, wow, in the North, it's massively profound. And in the South, it's even going to be more profound, right? Yeah. No, actually. Families used to be slaves now become sharecroppers on the same plantations where they were slaves for generations. In fact, they often had worse working conditions as sharecroppers than they did as slaves. Because if, if Eric's my slave, you're my property. And I try to take care of my property. If Eric's just a sharecropper, if you die, somebody else will take the land. Who cares? I'm not paying anything for you. Right? Well, and and how, how long did it take to get Because I mean, there still is. There's still te telegraphs. There's still word of mouth. You'd be surprised at how quickly this spread. Well, I thought that's why, like, Texas has the Juneteenth celebration. That's because that's the final reach to Texas. Well, that's there's a whole. Well, yes. Uh, did the did the effect reach him after a while, or did the news reach him after? No, that's a whole other thing. Okay. Anyway, so Southern states also created laws to maintain the practice of slavery, if not its actual name. They did all sorts of laws about, well, if you're a black person, you have to do certain several years of indentured service before you can do this. They start trying to fudge their ways around it. And Mississippi didn't even officially ratify the 13th Amendment until 2013. Yeah. They, they thought they did in 1995, but then nobody sent the paperwork in. You know, whatever. But, you know, 
20 years later, somebody said, I don't think we've actually done this. Did we not, did we not do all the paperwork? And went, oh, yeah, we probably ought to. 2013, when they finally acknowledged that maybe black people should be free. Many ways, perhaps the more important was the 14th Amendment. Anybody remember the 14th Amendment? That amendment overturned the Dred Scott case and defined citizenship by saying all persons born and or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction, jurisdiction thereof are full citizens of the United States. Yay, it made them all human. Yes, that's exactly yeah, what it did. Like, I don't care. I don't care what color they are. I don't care what, what uh, religion they are. It doesn't matter. They're full citizens. Up here you go, they're not slaves anymore. Yeah, well, yeah, but we can still, you know, no, full citizens. So that doesn't mean whether you're born free, you're born former slaves, you're totally legal citizens. And then the 15th Amendment passed in 1870 says, and you have a protected right to vote. You, you get to do, because we shouldn't have had to do a 15th Amendment about this, but apparently we have to do a 15th Amendment because these people are still not being allowed to vote. Kind of crucial. These 13th through 15th Amendments become known as the Reconstruction am Amendments. They're like, we're, we're reconstructing how we react to races here in America. Kind of a crucial time in American history. So, I know you're not going to remember all that, but try. 13th through 15th Amendments, kind of important amendments. Well, I just want to make sure, right, the, the, uh, or I'm wrong, the 20th Amendment is Amendment building, right? That's yeah, but that's, I mean, we're talking about people here, right? Okay, I just want to double check. Okay, no, you, 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 you say, ooh, but that is the point here. No, but they're, they're like, every man is created equal. That idea that, and women. Yeah, that's still that's still a ways in coming. People haven't quite wrapped their head around that concept yet. They're, they're still kind of lost in that. But again, again, it's steps. You, you have to see the steps. And for you, nobody ever just gets everything right the first bite. So you, they're, they're figuring this out. And after a while, they're like, "Well, yeah, women are people too, I guess." I hadn't thought about it. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. That makes sense. That takes a while. Not by yourselves. Okay, end game. Spring of 1865. Tons of battles going on, some of which the Confederacy even won, but it's mostly just a mopping up action. I mean, you, you've got these this tiny little bit. Not, yes, Union isn't in southern Florida, but nothing really is happening in southern Florida. Yes, the, the Union isn't in western Texas, but western Texas is basically going, yeah, we're doing our own thing anyway. Pretty much, pretty much that's it. This, this one red egg over there in the, in the, in the east. Um, by the time Grant beat Lee and confiscated supply ports at uh, supply lines at Petersburg on April 2nd, that's pretty much it. After Lee lost the Battle of Appomattox Courthouse on April 9th, he officially surrenders. Ignoring military tradition, Grant lets the officers keep their swords and sidearms and allows all the Confederate troops to keep their horses and mules. He's like, no, no, we're not punishing you. I just wanted to end this. Even ordered that Lee's starving army be fed and provisioned. It's like, no, our provisions are their provisions now. We're all Americans here. And I want them to be able to get home in time to plant their crops. Early April, they can still do it. Let them go. And they are going to need their horses. They're going to need their mules. Let them go. Famous exchange. Lee noticed that Grant's adjutant, uh, Eli Parker, was a full-blooded Seneca Indian. And he said, well, it's good to have at least one real American here. And Parker replied, sir, we are all. I like these guys. These are good people here at this stage of the game. So Lee cleans up. He addresses his troops one last time in formal ceremonies. 
if you were going to have a Union military commander leading the formal ceremonies, it wouldn't be Grant, because he's in charge of the whole thing. What kind of a person would you want to put in charge of these formal ceremonies to respect the South and to show a good footing for the Union? Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain leads the formal ceremonies of, of surrender. And he wrote later that both sides quietly honored one another, that the Union officers and troops refused to shout or cheer about their victory, and out of respect for Lee and his stalwart soldiers, they're like, he said this, this is the best example of manhood I've ever seen, is, is Robert E. Lee. We should have nothing but respect. These are our brothers. We were fighting to bring them back. And it's the healing of the nation. It's exactly what it is. And that was something that Chamberlain felt strongly about and wrote about. He's like, I have fought these guys. I did this massive action in Gettysburg. I've killed so many of them. But the whole point is to bring them back. And Lincoln's whole point with, with the Reconstruction, he's like, the whole point is to try and make sure that we work together as a nation. I'm preserving the Union. I don't want to punish them. I want to heal it. I want to bring them back. I think there's something theological that we can learn from that, isn't it? Instead of, and this is the nastiest moment in American history. Americans killing and fighting Americans over which Americans you can own and which Americans you can't. This is a horrific time. And yet, for us to remind ourselves, you know what? Our battle has never really been against the South. Our battle has been against slavery. Our battle has been against rebellion. If we can end slavery, if we can end rebellion, we can bring our brothers back. I think that's something we can think of as Christians. There's going to be all sorts of nasty people out there in the world doing nasty things. Is your battle against the people or is your battle against the, the principalities, the, the mindsets behind what they're doing? Take a nod from Abraham Lincoln and the coolest guy in the whole Civil War. April 14th, United States flag raised over Fort Sumter. Bring it back full circle. Because remember a couple of weeks ago when we talked about how first thing that happened was the flag being taken down from Fort Sumter. Now, put back up. You're Lincoln. Just heard that the flag is up on Fort Sumter. It's officially over. You want to celebrate. What are you going to do? Let's go see a play. That night, the night that the flag was raised over Fort Sumter, he and his wife went to Ford's Theater to watch a popular British play called Our American Cousin. And that's when he was assassinated by a radical named John Wilkes. Now, here's the thing. After this, the, uh, the North just went ballistic. I mean, yes, there have been presidential assassination attempts when somebody actually tried to kill Andrew Jackson. I don't know why you would try to get anywhere near Andrew Jackson and try to inflict bodily harm on him. 70-year-old guy beat the snot out of him. So it's like, no, but somebody actually assassinated an American president for the first time, right? That kind of changes things. This is a game changer. And so everything that Lincoln was saying about let's heal as a nation, a lot of that went by the wayside. Because now it's, we've got to punish them for what they've done. And if you remember Lincoln, by the time you get to this point, Lincoln has not only tried to be a moral guy, tried to be a good guy, but by the time he's got this guy, he's become, this time, he's become a strong Christian. This means something to him. And he is beginning to make decisions based solely on his relationship with Christ. He's being extremely overt. Read the second inaugural address. Read uh, his discussions of the 13th Amendment. How many times he, he bathes this in wanting to honor Christ. In many ways, we talked about that layman's revival, we talked about the, the Second Great Awakening and how this is big blossoming of the Holy Spirit and how the Civil War kind of squelched that. And that is true. 
like I said, so many of the Civil War soldiers were still writing home talking about how their relationship with Christ mattered to them and how it kept them going. All the bullets flying through all the Civil War, you can make an argument. This one bullet is the one that changed the world the most. Because after Lincoln died, after that, that, that apex of morality in the, in the Oval Office where you have a president saying, I am consistently, overtly tying everything that I'm doing to scripture. After that gets murdered, and after an angry retribution comes out, you never again get a president that does that. I mean, we've had presidents that quote scripture. We've had presidents that are, that are Christians. But the idea of saying, I am consistently, overtly, clearly doing everything to have a very strong Christian presence. We are, we're putting it on our coinage. In God we trust. We want to make everything. We're at national holidays. We're reminding ourselves to pray and thank God. Never again. Not at that level. After this, things get moral rather than Christian. Things get professional and political rather than spiritual from from uh, from Washington. We're reminded that there are things we have to do in the real world. I mean, it's just more complicated than I genuinely think God is calling us to this. Let's live like Scripture matters. After this, you'll get people quoting Scripture for political reasons, but not coming from their heart like this. I don't want to put too much pivot on it, Lincoln, like, he was amazing and everybody else has been horrible, but this was an apex, and after that night, everything changed. So, how important is this moment in history? And understanding why we got to this moment. How do we view this as Christians? How do we, how do we live this out in a meaningful way? How do you view the trials or wars going on in your life, the battles that you're going through? How do you view how you interact with people who disagree with you? How do you view how important it is to, to remain focused on the Lord as your center as you go through things? What if something really bad happens and you get a horrible left-handed turn? This is not at all what you want to do. You stick with the plan that you made when it, before the left turn? Or do you say, well, this is a game changer. This changes everything. This is a crucial point in history. I was just thinking, a person like Lincoln had the humility to do that. I think of today in politics, where is that humility? But that humility costs something because we want triumphalism, and as Christians, we want that too. And I think what we really need is that humility that's willing to, but it's a, it's a very costly thing, and it's not very popular. I think that's an excellent way to end, end this session and talking about the Civil War and, and this chunk of our, our class because we'll start up again in the fall, but that is exactly the way to look at that, is we, we look for the big win. We look for that triumphalism. We look for that victory, that success. And I don't care whether you're thinking about it as a war, or you're thinking about it as a, um, as a bottom line in your checkbook. Or we look for that thing where we go, and this, this is when we win, and this is when we show them, and this is when I prove myself. When, when Time and again, what God is calling us is to say, do you have the humility to to, to be my people, to continue being my people, to hold on to your character. We overcome not by beating the enemies back. We overcome through the blood of our testimony and the character that we show. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you for people like 
Chamberlain, and thank you for people like Lincoln, and thank you for the people that you brought into our lives who really genuinely want to demonstrate what it means to have a heart that's set apart for you. Help us, Lord, to love you well, and to love one another well as an act of worship toward you. Father, it can be so easy to get caught up in our own battles, and caught up in our own thinking, and caught up in doing our own thing, and caught up in wanting to have those those feelings of victories, caught up in shoving other people down, and caught, just caught up in this world. I pray, Lord, help us. Help us to remind ourselves what it means to be a community. It's not just a community of us versus them. It's a community of us versus all those things that are keeping them from being us. Help us, Lord, to love one another well, especially those people who are not us. We pray, Lord, help us to lay ourselves at your feet and be ambassadors for yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Anyone want to read one, sir?